0: Hi, this is Aaron Free Smith with the with the New Books Network Africa Channel. Uh, Today we are with George Paul Mayu. He has written a fantastic book entitled Ethnoerotic Economies: Sexuality, Money, and Belonging in Kenya. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2017. Welcome, George. Oh, thank you for having me, Aaron. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, So let's jump right in. Uh, So, how did you get your start? in this
1: topic? Uh, I'm uh, an anthropologist. I'm a um, assistant professor of anthropology and African-African-American studies at Harvard University. So um, I teach classes on Africa, sexuality, gender, um, kinship and citizenship, um, ethnographic methods. So much of what um, what this book is actually about comes from uh, a long-term engagement with um, some of these topics, but also some of my uh, personal interests in anthropology. Um I am originally from Romania. Uh, my parents um, and I uh, migrated, uh, immigrated to Canada uh, just after I, I finished high school. I actually had started um, um, college uh, in, in Romania at University of Transylvania. Um, and that's where I uh, became interested in anthropology um, as a kid, actually um, growing up uh, or spending much of my uh, time in my father's um, village um where um there was this culture of um post-socialist kind of ethnography um where whole groups of people would go and study a village and uh, i came to anthropology basically um because um while i was 12 or 13 uh anthropologists were studying the village where my father was from and they were interviewing my grandmother and so on so um a lot of 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 what materialized, basically, in in this project, is is the product of a long standing engagement with um, with anthropology and uh, with particular sets of topics um, within it.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Particularly, that is a a big critique of outside scholars going into Africa, particularly anthropologists, uh, sort of coming in as the outsider and and studying them as as subjects rather than as people. But you already have that that experience. That's really fascinating.
1: Right. I I did grow up um, uh, with anthropologists in in my (laughs) village, as it were. Um, And I was constantly aware of that as I was working in villages in Samburu in northern Kenya uh myself. Uh actually it was sometimes with um uh young men who had um BA degrees in anthropology. Some poor young men who had um, BAs in uh, in anthropology. So there is a growing interest, actually, uh, even in my field site now, in in anthropology and its possibilities, especially in relation mm-hmm. to development, um, uh, politics, um, questions of land, uh, and so on.
0: Right, and and the ways in which anthropology can inform uh, people's uh, like agency within those rural districts, or or in what way?
1: Absolutely. But also in terms of how can you imagine a future in a context in which yeah. um, people like um, uh, Samburu have long been marginalized within the nation state, um, economically and politically, that is. Um, and now, um, in the past few years, there's been an uprise of, of new kinds of possibilities, partially because um, the Kenyan state has been reconfigured, um, a new constitution has been written, a power has been um, uh, decentralized, as it were, um, um, and um, Samburu, that has long been a marginal area, now it's venturing in all kinds of forms of capital with tourism, um, safari uh, tourism, uh, all kinds of enterprises and so on. So that kind of, interestingly, some of the um, uh, people I know with um Uh, higher education in social sciences are actually very much involved in the world of NGOs uh, and Mm -hmm. the new politics of the county, county, uh, the Samburu County, uh, to imagine new kinds of collective futures.
0: Right. That's interesting. Um, And so how did you arrive at Africa, but more specifically Kenya for your region of study?
1: Yeah, I I was uh, an undergraduate student at Concordia University in Montreal, and um, I had a Professor um, Andrea Vasca, who grew up in Kenya and who um, whose courses I took, and um, that's how I became very much interested in Kenya per se. Uh, what? took me to Kenya were topics that basically have little to do with uh, with the current book though they're not absent from it uh, one was of course um, uh, tourism which is is still very much there I was interested in what tourism does um, to um, various places and various so, communities um, the other topic was cattle uh, I grew up in a village that uh, um, basically, depended on cattle economies uh, in part. Um, So I was very much interested in cattle economies as an undergraduate student. Um, Certainly this has little to do uh, with the outcome of the book. I came up Mm -hmm. with the subject of of my book uh, in 2005 when I was doing preliminary research in the area. And um, I went there Interested in, in tourism and cattle, but not really uh, knowing what I was doing. Um, and at that point, my informants were talking extensively about um, relationships between women from uh, Western European countries and uh, Samburu men young Samburu men, um, what was basically happening was that um, since the 1980s, um, Samburu men um, were migrating uh, to um, the coast, to the Indian Ocean, uh, to Mombasa and other coastal cities. And um, they were um, dancing for tourists, selling souvenirs, uh, but most of the time hoping to actually meet European women for uh, one-night stands or for long-term, long-distance relationships, uh, oftentimes also marriages. Um, and these kinds of relationships circulated um, um, miraculous kind of wealth. In Samburu villages up north, we're talking about a, a very um, large distance of 600 miles between the coast and the homeland of um, the homes of these men uh, in, in northern Kenya. And you can imagine villages with... mud houses or uh, houses made of wooden poles and and iron sheet roofs and suddenly in that kind of landscape you have villas with three stories materialized mm-hmm. uh, uh land rovers parked in front of their gates uh, so this kind of miraculous wealth became suddenly so visible and when i arrived uh, uh for the first time in in maralal and um, the, which is the headquarter of samburu county and the surroundings that was the kind of topic that interested people a lot one of the many topics, of course, but uh, there there seemed to be a lot of gossip, a lot of rumor about this kind of um, wealth that materialized miraculously in in their landscape, and um, uh, trying to understand how this wealth is being associated with sexuality, why has sex become... um, a source of money and and wealth. Uh, is it a legitimate source of money and wealth? Would that kind of wealth last, or would it uh, dissipate as quickly as it arrived? Um, so these kinds of um, topics were central, as long as with, uh, as as well as um, trying to figure out um, who these men really are and what they're trying to do with their wealth. Are they trying to belong to? Um, uh, local kinship groups, to clans and lineages, to their age grades and age sets, some of these topics that were uh, long studied by an older generation of anthropologists, but th- that suddenly became so important, again, um, as principles for defining belonging locally in a context in which um, Samburu collectively sought new ways to re-articulate their uh, the relationship with, to the state, the market, uh, and to each other.
0: Right. And and how were you able to uh, gain the trust of these people and, and able to sort of break down that barrier between the foreigner trying to come in and, and um, look at their lives?
1: Certainly, we have um, better relationships with some people. We get to know other people less, but it's always through particular kinds of friendships, I think, that, that we come to learn as anthropologists um, what we do. I um, spent a lot of time trying to learn um, the languages. I, I speak Swahili fluently. Um, I'm quite advanced in, in in Ma Samburu Ma language, both of which were quite important um, in doing field work. Um, but I also spent much time. I spent all my summers there uh, since 2005, uh, uh, pretty much, um, as well as long-term fieldwork for a year and a half at some point. Um, and throughout throughout these years, um, of course, I got to know certain families. I worked in in a f- several villages, but two of which I usually I cover most of all in the book uh, are my um, the, the places where I spend most of the time in. Um, so uh, it is through building those kinds of relationships um, that I think um, this uh, this learning process could start.
0: Right, but in addition to maintaining those relationships, you you also were publishing in this time as well about your findings. Were you not? Was yes. It, was it difficult to? Did you need to hide your findings in order to keep people open or? How were you able to negotiate
1: that? Sexuality, I think, is a very controversial topic in Kenya nowadays. But oftentimes I found that... um, I didn't. I didn't. I certainly did not have to hide the fact that I was studying sexuality, and most people were very open uh, to talk to me about these kinds of problems. Partially because, uh, as I said before, they were trying to understand uh, how sexuality figures in their own lives. Uh, since colonialism, um, Samburu and Maasai and other East African um, uh, ethnic groups have been sexualized uh, by colonial discourse, by developmental discourse, mm-hmm. um, HIV prevention discourse is yet another place where. Um, um, certain kind of certain ethnic groups have been um, uh, othered and, and sexualized in, in problematic kind of ways. Um, so, what, the, my, many of my interlocutors were aware of living with this kind of alterity in their lives and trying to imagine lives through and around that kind of um, sexual alterity. Uh, so, in a way, they were very much interested in figuring out how adultery figures in everyday life, how questions of incest, how um, um, transactional sex, uh, figures and how one might imagine a future by putting this in the right place. So in that sense, I, I, I did not have to hide anything that these were, these were questions mm-hmm. that were openly discussed. Though, of course, I did feel that oftentimes in, um, in conversations with middle-class Kenyans, um, and, um, mostly in Nairobi, the capital city or Mombasa, my, the topic of my research was considered, uh, vulgar, uh. Potentially sure. an embarrassment uh, to Kenya. Certainly, this was not uh, the opinion of um, the men and women uh, in Saburi I worked with. And what I tried to do also was um, to um, have some of my uh, informants and research assistants read what I write. Um, it works. Mm-hmm. It works uh, very well, I think, in, uh, for receiving certain kind of feedback uh, and adding detail to to my findings and so on. Um, so that's that's something i've I've been trying to to work with
0: okay and I found that the the diverse range of actors in this book was quite astounding. It really felt as though you looked at it from a myriad of of points of view um One set that I was very interested in um which you did go into detail on were were these European women right now initially um how do you think that this group of women have, have changed? Because this has been going on for a long time, and it seems as though there's there's people who are actively encouraging this form of economy, right. um, both the tourism industry and and the people at the beach. So how did these women sort of shift over the time? That's
1: an interesting question. Uh, one thing I was trying to do, actually, was um, just to, to respond first to your for the first part of your question, was to resist any attempt to narrow this project down on a Set of uh, predetermined tourist site where tourists and guests meet, which which is pretty much what the anthropology of tourism uh, has been doing uh, in a way. So so thinking of the tourist site as the field site, your anthropological village, as it were, and and try to map the dynamics uh, within those sites. I try to break away from that and look at the kinds of exchanges that that happen between um, Samburu uh, areas coastal tourism, Uh, and to some extent Europe, although for this book, I didn't do any uh, field research in Europe, but I did work with the European uh, women uh, you mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the women um, that I worked with, uh, European women, um, some of which were um, just in Kenya for their vacations on the coast. Many others uh, purchased land and built houses um, up north in Samburu, trying to follow their partners to their uh, home communities. Um, Some moved there permanently, a few of them though. um, Many others would would come and visit them every summer and so on. But there was a certain kind of investment in in Samburu, in their partner's relationship, relationships with their kin groups, lineages, and so on. And uh, for many of them, that was a way to um, not only build effective kinship, but also to reinvent themselves, to think themselves in different kinds of ways. Um now, uh, to speak more specifically to the question of how this has changed uh, over time... It's hard to tell because um, certainly we're talking about, most of the time, about more senior women. Since the 1980s already, it was more senior women who, who would move. We're talking about lower to upper middle class women in Germany, England, um, um, the Netherlands, um, France, um, some of the Scandinavian countries as well. Um, were you asking me in terms of a specific demographic or also in terms of kind of shifting desires perhaps
0: no I, I think that I, I mean it, it's it looks as though uh, it creating roots in Kenya adds validity to the relationship right so I mean how are these women seen I mean are they seen as you know these cougars who are who are there to extract virility and masculinity or are they seen as actual partners mm-hmm. this is it's it's it's
1: The ambivalence, I think, that is most powerful here, because uh, on the one hand, um, and this this is why I'm actually resisting any kind of classification throughout the book of uh, referring to my interlocutors as romance tourists or sex tourists or any of that sort, because those kinds of labels uh, basically um, uh, 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 show very little. Um, Indeed... uh, Many of the women that I worked with uh, were interested to dissociate themselves very consciously from those kinds of labels. They were uh, trying to dissociate themselves from the tourist side and move into some communities, thus producing something um, uh, potentially more authentic. Um so certainly that kind of move outside the tourist resorts I'm not sure if that's new per se um, but it's it's an important um, act of self-making so I'm writing about for example how um, building homes becomes a very important act uh, or 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 um Realm of self-making for some of the European women that I worked with. Um, one um, a woman who came from Britain uh, and lived in Kenya for the past twenty-five years uh, was constantly engaged in a project of building a house, um, decorating it, and so on. She was uh, she was wealthier than other women I worked. And once she built a new house, she would sell the old one, move into the new one, and so on. So that kind of labor of building and designing and so on uh, were I see as very much about self-making. Um, another uh, woman from Germany who was living in a, a mud house in, Samburu, in a Samburu village with her partner and was uh, certainly not um, as wealthy as others, um, constantly spent time b- purchasing fabrics, um, uh, sm- small kind of furniture that would fit in her house, and and trying to imagine this kind of space of romance and family. So those kinds of mm-hmm. those kinds of uh, ideas were certainly very important, as well as um, trying to reflect constantly reflect. This was a, a, an important theme about the role of money in their own uh, intimacies. So uh, many of the women I worked with were preoccupied um, with um, the extent to which um, their Samburu families or partners um, should or should not um, uh, demand money from them, uh, how much money they could ask. for. Or before the relationship was no longer one based on love but rather one uh, based on uh, monetary transactions and this of course has right. been a, a long topic in uh, a long-standing topic in uh, both anthropology um, and and social social theory um, I'm thinking just of Vivian Zelizer's work um, about the uh, Constant Euro-American preoccupation with telling the limits between money and authentic love, and so on. But certainly, what we know from the uh, uh, from African studies and studies on uh, love and intimacy in, in African contexts uh, are that these kinds of uh, realms are not as separated. Um, to get back to your question about how the women were seen um, here, a certain kind of ambivalence is very important. On the one hand, um, the the Age difference between the women and uh, their younger male partners was an object of uh, ridicule um, in gossip, everyday gossip, but also in some of the Samburu folk songs um, that I recorded, um, and an issue of um, a certain kind of. Uh, a certain kind of moral anxiety, because what those kinds of relationships brought out in the open in Samburu was the fact that similar relationships actually existed in Samburu villages between young men and the wives of, of, of elders, Um Adulterous relationships that, while everybody knew that they existed, had to be kept secret. They had to be revealed, uh, um, hidden, as it were, from from public view. So that kind of like publicizing of a of a intergenerational relationship was often found very problematic. Um, men and women also found problematic the fact that uh, many of these relationships would not result in. Uh, offspring. And therefore, in the growth of the lineage, um, and that notion of, of growth um, um, I'm writing about is, um, is quite important in understanding uh, mm-hmm. where social value is located and quite normative, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so the absence of children was certainly uh, a problem at times. But at the same time, um, there are very affectionate ways of referring to the white woman in, in the Sampuru lineage as our, um, our mzungu, our white woman, or our white person, or our daughter. Or um, And in a way, uh, there was a certain kind of fetishization of, of whiteness there as well, uh, that the white woman could be the person to provide, to help in this kind of growing process of the lineage by making certain kind of resources uh, available.
0: So they're creating the economy for social development, but not creating that... um the children to create the lineage. Was it, was it possible for a man to take several wives if he had a white woman?
1: Um, many did actually um, precisely because they had a white woman and had more access to more money as it uh-huh. were than other men. So one issue was bride wealth. And, and for the past few decades, um, less and less men, I argue are, have been able to pay bride wealth. Um, and, uh, what has been happening for the past 10, 15 years is that bride wealth debts become the rule as opposed to bri- actual bride wealth cattle or money. Uh, that is to say the promise that one day when I will have money, I will be paying the bride wealth. Um, and what these men were able to do uh, is that because of access to money through their uh, white partners, they would pay upfront bride wealth for one or two wives oftentimes way before they would be allowed in terms of age set rules to marry. And suddenly you had uh, young men in their early twenties becoming polygamous elders uh, precisely because they could afford to pay that bride wealth. Now, whether or not their European partners knew about these marriages is a whole different story. Uh, mm-hmm. One um, French woman um, who was my a longstanding informant um, was okay uh, to find out that um, her partner, her husband, um, also married a second wife, a samburu woman, um, arguing, playing a certain kind of popular cultural relativism and saying that since I married in his culture, I have to respect his culture. Uh, but many women were not uh, okay about that. So um, oftentimes some of the threats that emerge in villages uh, as, as a form of revenge against young men who, because they're so wealthy, are also arrogant, is to threaten them to inform their European partners of all the other marriages they have been uh, uh, contracting.
0: Right. And there was one instance in your book where a white woman actually took the the former husband or the current husband to court to the traditional court. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes. Um, the, the, well, it's it's not a traditional court. It, it was to the, uh, the the county court to get back um, the wealth that um, that she had spent uh, uh, in 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 some bur- bur- and actually had put on his name. Yeah.
0: Right. So so. We're sort of speaking right now about more successful stories about <laughs> the men who are able to go return and and have some sort of um, higher status through this well right. but what what are the stories of of failure i mean what what was the success rate for men going to the beach areas and returning home with wealth?
1: So This is a, is a very important question because uh, at the same time that some of the richest men in Samburu that um, I, I met basically uh, during, during the years I was there were men in relationships with European women. Some of the poorest were also men who actually spent many years on the coast trying to find European partners uh, without any kind of success. And in the process um, because coastal cities are so much more expensive than life uh, in Samburu, um, not being able to return with any substantial savings. Um, I do think that the ones who um, so to say quote unquote failed in this process were many more than those who actually succeeded. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk uh, a bit about, about the conundrums of their their lives uh, in a second. but I also think that those who did succeed, became highly visible precisely because of the visibility of their wealth, therefore animating all kinds of desires to go to the coast. Uh, and, and engage in this kind of speculative economy of self-making and ethno-eroticization um, to potentially uh, get to that kind of wealth. And this is a, a small window that we're talking about here too. Um, aging becomes a depleting process um, uh, for young men, as for young women in any kind of sexual economy, um, so that uh, one can only spend so many years in a sexual economy and still have a chance um, to uh, encounter a European partner Um and come 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 into this kind of wealth, uh, as it were. So many of the men who aged on the coast without acquiring any wealth came to be known in Samburu as beach boy elders um, mm-hmm. in, in Ma. It's lo beach uh, boy, which is kind of a a, a a disrespectful way to refer to an elder, a way to infantilize him. But also um, the the notion of the beach boy as a certain kind of perverted masculinity um, is 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 an important way to, to think about them. And many of these men who returned, well, some of them never return. Um, uh, a few of them that I know stay on the coast because they um, do not have a family. They do not have anything um, to subsist uh, on in Samburu. But many uh, others do come back. And when they do, um, uh, they become very invested in the ritual politics of the um, uh, of the. Samburu County uh, a ritual has long been a prerogative of elders uh, male and female elders and um, a place nowadays where uh, you can seek some for some sort of empowerment because uh, so many of these uh Wealthy young men do need the blessings of elders if they want to contract marriages ahead of time, ahead of their um, uh, uh, legitimate age set time, as it were, because um, so many politicians actually uh, seek different kind of ritual blessings from elders. Ritual itself is more and more inflected with a commodity value. So some of the so-called beach boy elders who return home without any wealth suddenly become very invested in the ritual economies of their own villages, their own clans, uh, and seek new ways to assert their belonging to the region and to uh, seek some sort of respectability in their home communities.
0: And could that be seen as punitive or is that just utilizing a, a more traditional means of, of gaining empowerment?
1: i think i think um it's it is using a traditional means of uh, of gaining empowerment, but it is also a very uh deep and affectionate way to uh reclaim attachment to land to uh, a social group uh, um, a p- from which you expect a certain a certain kind of like support respectability um um and, and uh, moral help in in, in conditions of, of crisis so those forms of entrustment uh, that that are are very important in in village life and and especially among the poor uh, become key I think I, I'm also showing in a book that for example age sets um, which have been like this long long uh, theme in East African uh, ethnology the whole idea that uh, say uh, Men get initiated uh, who are born within a 15-year period, eventually get to be initiated into an age set. And the age set moves across different age grades throughout life, lifetime. And it's one age set is the Moran, uh, the young warriors who are incidentally the young men who are uh, uh, desirable in tourism. But then you move into elderhood, junior elderhood, uh, senior elderhood, and so on. And a lot of the debate in this kind of early East Africanist anthropology was that with uh, with the capitalist market and its individualizing uh, individualist ethos, uh, age grades and age sets will eventually disappear. Well, what I'm seeing in Samburu is that what is happening. Uh, Is not that they disappear to the country. They, they are becoming important in new ways, but they're also more animated by inequalities. So, young men who do not go to the coast or those who have gone to the coast and have been unsuccessful uh, find it very important to reassert those age set ties with their age mates um, because those kinds of ties allow them to engage in all kinds of reciprocity, loans, debts. Um, all kind of help. Whereas young men who do get a lot of wealth, uh, now dissociate themselves from their age sets, um, uh, precisely not to have them constantly ask for money and, and dissipate their wealth. Um, and oftentimes try to skip age sets by, uh, sorry, age grades by becoming elders before their time, um, precisely because they have that money and they seek local respectability, it is through the H set system that that kind of respectability can be pursued.
0: Mm-hmm. And do these sort of uh, um, communities, these H set communities, were they also present at the beachfront as well? Or, or was it a more capitalist individual uh, pursuit of wealth at the beachfront?
1: Interestingly, um, the way in which... Um, Historically, Samburu on the coast from the 1980s, actually 1979 was it, was the first time when Samburu started migrating to the coast. And age sets um, and age grading uh, hierarchy uh, is actually, was has been very important to how um, access to the beach economy has been structured among Samburu men themselves. So that um, with time, those were elders were in charge of um, making sure that uh, young men behave properly, that they're saving the money, uh, that they're not um, um, wasting it on the coast. There was a whole system actually of taking daily attendance in the major towns, um, uh, where Samburu, Samburu, there was a Samburu presence. Uh, all the young men had to be at a certain hour at a particular bar and the elders would take attendance to make sure that everybody's okay. And in case somebody was arrested by police for walking without a permit, um, they would go and bail that person out. So the age sets, uh, I think, were were fundamental in importance. Also, on the coast, um, there were these kinds of uh, self-help groups or welfare organizations that were often ethnicized, uh, Kamba carvers, um, uh, these carvers of the Kamba ethnic group had their own organizations. Samburu had their own organizations. And these organizations were led by elders. Uh, they were oftentimes collecting the money that young men were making, putting it in a, a, in a joint account. Um, they could um, invest in all kinds of projects. And of late, um, while I was uh, there, um, some of these elders were making sure that... Um, young men don't have access to their money until the day they're actually boarding a bus back to Samburu to make sure that the money that they make on the coast gets invested in their home communities That's um, yeah and uh, to that to that extent, I think that these kind of age at h age, um, age grade logics did play an important role not only in belonging at home but also in rerouting the money from the coast to home at the same time that the opposite is also the case. Young men f- find new w- mo- modes of uh, imagining their own identities on the coast. They suddenly see themselves as youth and um, find new possibilities of evading um Uh, elders' control, as it were. So there were all these um, uh, fights between elders and young men, um, one of which I document just at the beginning of the conclusion, Mm -hmm. um, where um, um, a young man swears at an elder after the elder is trying to scold him for disturbing the tourists. And then the age sets basically begin mobilizing against each other and fighting. And the, the chief of the dancing group says that On the coast, there is no difference between age sets, that we're all the same, and our purpose here is business. So stop arguing over who's an elder and who's a a young man. And I thought of that moment very much because that's where you see a certain kind of brand logic of ethnicity, Mm -hmm. right? The very idea that uh, what the Samburu um, are recognized for is this image of the young erotic Male warrior, you see a brand image articulating with the uh, with a with a or coming into a certain kind of a contradiction with the logics of seniority that are otherwise so important for belonging.
0: Right, and and would they stop anyone oh, when the money was collected within these age groups? It, it obviously could also be seen as a training ground and and helping. Uh, individuals, but was there any way to siphon that money back and perhaps go a different way? Because what I, what I find is interesting is that they they're moving away from traditional culture in such a way, creating this new capitalist economy based upon these tropes of, of um, traditional culture, but then why would they try to reintegrate as opposed to moving somewhere else?
1: Right. This is, this was a key question that I I had starting uh, this project. Why, unlike other uh, uh, other men in Kenya who were actually trying to find at the coast. Um, European partners precisely to move away or even young women in relationship to in relationships with Swiss, Italian men and so on, um, were seeking relationships in order to move to Europe. Why these men were, were trying to move to otherwise marginal area of Kenya and invest in those kinds of um, uh, relationships that might seem traditional, but what I'm arguing is that they're already so much inflected and have been so much inflected by the logics of commodity consumption, mm-hmm. by the logics of risk that, um, 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 in a way, the the, the differentiation here between a capitalist and a traditional outside become themselves problematic. Although uh, men themselves do see those as traditional, they do see them as somehow immutable, and therefore also a guarantee of a certain kind of social value. And the answer that I could come up with was um, that precisely because of its political and economic marginalization, Samburu, the Samburu area, Samburu County, um, in Samburu County, money could be converted into forms of wealth that were uh, perhaps much more visible, much more powerful than elsewhere. So to have a two-story house and a Land Rover in Nairobi um, in a context in which you don't know many people does not make the same kind of statement as it does in a Samburu village. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the savannah where uh, primarily what you have is like uh, small uh, mud houses and occasionally the wooden houses of labor migrants and so on. but that kind of visible convertibility of wealth was not enough in itself because what I'm arguing is that um, uh, money comes with a certain kind of history here and people read that wealth and contested associating it with um, witchcraft on the coast, associating it with a sex in which it originated and therefore considering it highly pollution po- polluted. So, for example, to, um, to think of... Um, um, feeding your parents or your children with money that you obtained from sex with tourists is um, something that uh, many samburu see as highly problematic because it's, it's a uh, re um, circulating the logics of incest and adultery and pollution in all kinds of ways. So the question then became, how do you transform this money? It's not just that you bring the wealth to Samburu, but how do you convert it into something that is more durable, morally uh, uh, appropriate, Um, and that uh, both on the coast and in Samburu, gave rise to all kinds of debates over what does it mean to belong in the first place, what does it mean to build a future, Uh, and what forms of social value are durable, a guarantee of a certain kind of um, growth, uh, family growth and and individual growth into the future, and which ones are only promising uh, temporary pleasures.
0: Mm -hmm. And then speaking about um, the ceremonies and the rituals, um, could you speak a little bit about the Lopiro c- ceremony? Now, it, it seems from the book that this is a new thing that's just come up uh, in the past few decades. But is there a history to this ceremony?
1: There absolutely is. Um, I actually came upon the Lopiro ceremonies um, by accident, I didn't even know they exist. Uh, uh, they weren't uh, described anywhere in the literature, um, but they were very important uh, at the time that they took place in two thousand ten and two thousand and eleven So basically what the ceremony uh is is a um, clan ceremony that uh, mobilizes uh, young married women against a younger age set of men who (coughs) typically are said to have been their uh, adulterous lovers. And what the ceremony is trying to do is reconcile those relationships by way of reasserting a certain kind of uh, affective attachment to the clan. Uh, At the same time, uh, some of the most spectacular moments in L'Opiro is when money is being recirculated um, basically, um, money is gathered from the whole clan, and those men who were in relationships to European women had to donate the highest amount of money. But remember, I just said that kind of money is money of sex, mm-hmm. is money polluted money, right? So why would you want it in in a, a ritual that's trying to 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 um, uh, reenact a certain kind of uh, a morality and so on? And I'm arguing that it's precisely a certain kind of ritual money laundering here that we're seeing that by recirculating that wealth to the clan, you reassert a certain kind of investment in local attachment, but you also cleanse that money by, by the kind of uh, good gesture of sharing it with your um, clan mates. Uh, and, To just get uh, uh, back to to the question you were asking, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a history to L'Opiro. Many of my informants said that um, the ceremony only started sometimes in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, However, um, looking into the component parts of the ceremony. Um, One can see it uh, even beyond that in other kinds of ceremonies that eventually were brought together um, and into what is today L'Opiro. But what is fascinating is that with every instantiation, this is a ceremony that only takes place every 15 years or so. With every instantiation, there is a certain kind of inflation in the kind of gifts that are being circulated. Uh, In the 60s or 70s, um, most of the gifts were about blankets, uh, tobacco, uh, soap. Uh, By the 1990s, people were exchanging bicycles, right? An idiom of a particular kind of masculinity, but uh, because bicycles are primarily used by men, but also a certain kind of... Masculine mobility that is supposed to regenerate certain kinds of local attachments, and by 2010 and 11, when I uh, when I studied them, um, clans were exchanging motorcycles on top of. Bicycles, um, and they were beginning already to plan to also purchase cars and pickup trucks as uh, as this kind of statements of collective power um, in uh, in the exchanges of Lopiró. And how I read that kind of inflation is by dialectically looking at. The statement that it makes against a certain within a broader space of the Kenyan state, in which the Samburu have long been marginalized, but that kind of marginalization has also taken place through logics of sexual um, alterity. The idea that because they're sexually different, because they're so backward, we're not going to invest in infrastructure, we're not going to invest in a local economy. Uh, and repositioning themselves by solving issues of adultery, um, uh, improper sexuality, in relation to this kind of imaginary of their sexual alterity, and also by mobilizing a certain kind of wealth uh, to make a statement about political participation and political power to participate in a broader state uh, arena.
0: Mm -hmm. And who brought about these ceremonies? Uh, Because... The women felt as though they were very important for this cleansing, and so they would often stand in the stead of their missing sons. Is that correct?
1: Actually, uh, no. That's a that's a that would be a separate ceremony. The women oh, here, the women here are actually um, these mothers of morans or young warriors are um, what I I call them the fire stick uh, elders wives. Um, uh, It's women at the kind of peak of their political career are uh, very important in these ceremonies and they are the ones initiating a ceremony oftentimes by um, uh, um, resisting the kind of opposition of their husbands. Um, So they are, they are, really very much invested in them precisely because it is also a fertility ceremony. Uh, Lopiro uh, promises to restore the fertility of women uh, who can still give birth um, um, and have a lot of stake in growing um, uh, their, their lineages. Mm. Yeah.
0: Wow. Sorry, go ahead
1: uh so so the what you mentioned though um about uh, mothers replacing sons uh, is a different kind of ceremony it was uh, also taking place um in in the villages where I work uh, but it 's on a on a smaller scale and that was trying to deal it's it 's called a mayan and it makes, basically means a blessing and it was trying to deal with the fact that over the past decade uh more and more young men were actually fighting um uh, physically fighting with elders. And that raised all kinds of questions about the uh, authority of elders and the disrespect of young men, and so on. Um, so this Mayan was meant to kind of restore those relationships so that elders would not curse uh, young men with death. And when the ceremonies were taking place, and so much uh, so much energy was invested in them, um, some of the men who are on the coast working in tourism, because it was the peak of the the season, tourists. And here, like the Samburu calendar of prepare- time, which is basically following the moon, um, is, is conflicting with the peak uh, tourist seasons on the coast, many of the men did not return home. So uh, I'm describing how some of their kin, including their mothers, would take their calabashes, the kind of um, wooden um, uh, containers in which they would drink milk, um, to uh, replace them in this ceremony, to take on the blessings uh, for them, uh, in that case, uh, devising new kinds of ways of incorporating absent men into the local ties of belonging.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. It's it's very fascinating how um, the importance of ritual within the within the society, and how. But it, I think yeah. yeah. Sorry.
1: I think I think that that's the precisely the point that I'm trying to make here. It's not that we're talking about a, a place, a community in which ritual is important, period. But rather the fact that what ritual means and what ritual does at different times is itself a historical question, and that these kinds of ritual economies themselves get intensified in particular contexts in which they become meaningful politically. Uh, by way of imagining a collective future, by way of imagining a relationship to the state, um, and so on. So that that whole opposition that we typically have um, uh, of, you know, what's traditional place that deals with ritual and modern places that deal with consumption and other things is itself... A very problematic uh, assumption. Ritual is modern through and through. Uh, Of course, it has a long history, but it is also a political means for envisioning futures in the present. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, that's great. Uh, Thank you so much for for talking about this. Um, I, I would like to, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I would like to ask you about what your next project is.
1: Sure. I'm currently working on a book that is uh, tentatively entitled uh, Rescuing Sex, Intimacy, and the Moral Rehabilitation of Citizenship in Kenya. And um, the key Idiom that is at the core of this book is the idiom of rescue. Um, that is different kinds of calls to save intimacy from, say, the corrupting forces of contemporary life and to secure it as a condition of collective vitality and prosperity. And what drove me to this project. Uh, were certainly the current debates about sexuality in East Africa. And many of our listeners will be familiar with um, the kind of panics that emerged around homosexuality in many African countries. Um, And Uganda has been uh, probably one of the most mediatized um, cases. But certainly Kenya uh, is... is, right in that, that, that area. Um, and I'm trying to think about how um, humanitarian ideologies of rescue have been... Um, have been permeating uh, people's self-understanding of their own attachments to the state and to each other. So that I've been working, uh, again, uh, on the coast, but also in Nairobi and also in Samburu with with, uh, different people who now understand uh, their gestures of helping others in terms of rescue. Um, For example, you have sex workers on the coast who would uh, intervene in a situation in which one of them is being being um, um, uh, beaten by a customer, or um, in which a child is being ignored by a mother, and so on, and would understand what they're doing as rescue. Even in Swahili, they would say, to nafanya kazi ya rescue, that is, we do the work of, of rescue. And what I'm trying to understand is how this ethos of rescue emerges, and how does it become an important site from which to understand the relationship between sexuality and citizenship and sociality in Kenya today? Mm -hmm. But the way I get to it is by trying to uh, look at different kinds of objects uh, around which a certain kind of rescue ethos becomes available, one of which is plastic, uh, plastic in Samburu, uh, where... um, uh, a lot of kind of panics around plastic and how plastic might pollute not only the environment, but also bodies, also kinship, and so on, um, has to do with the fact that plastic is um, a, a non self reproducing material um, and a polluting, a foreign polluting material at once, which, in a way, like quote unquote homosexuality in these kinds of discourses, is polluting the nation from the outside. And there are other kinds of objects I'm looking at, like diapers and beads and the figure of the terrorists. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm trying to imagine a book around this kind of what I call queer objects that allow us to tap into sexuality from domains that are not immediately um, uh, recognizable as the domains of the sexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm taking kind of Foucault's uh, idea of sex being a fictive unity uh, seriously and trying to see where what are the other places from which understanding sexuality and sexual citizenship becomes possible.
0: Oh, well, that sounds fascinating. I, I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us today. Again, this is George Paul Mayu, and he has written the book "Ethnoerotic Economies: Sexual Sexuality, Money, and Belonging in Kenya," and it was published by University of Chicago Press in 2017. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Erin. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, thank our you. listeners.